I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. When were you called to the house? Um, first instance, Tuesday evening, 6.15. The gas of a block toilet? Um, block pipe between the toilet and the main, the main sewer. It was then that you made the discovery? After initial uh, investigation, yes. Yeah. What did you find? Um, a mass of flesh, should we say. Which at first... Um, you know what you found. Heavily suspected. Was there enough there for more than one body? Quite possibly. Yeah. So on Tuesday night, there was a, a lot of flesh, a lot of meat in the manhole. When you went back on Wednesday morning, it had all gone? Yeah, completely. Um, if a manhole can be sparkling, it was sparkling. Um, somebody had obviously been down there and cleared it out. Do you think someone had cleared it all, or could it have been cleared naturally? No way. No way. Not, not that amount of um, flesh. They asked me how many of them were, and I didn't really know, I just gave them a figure. On a weekend, I would sort of pull out the floorboards, and I found it totally unpleasant and get blinding drunk, so I could face it and start this section on the kitchen floor, haul the body out onto the floorboards, put it on the sheet, and then cut it out. The most exciting part of the little conundrum was when I lifted the body, carried it, it was an expression of my power to lift and carry and have control. And the, the dangling element of limp limbs was an expression of his passivity. The more passive he could be, the more powerful our bodies are all gone. Everything's gone. There is nothing left. But I still feel a spiritual communion with these people. Hello. 
and welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. It is the penultimate episode of Series 6. We are back again in Boston Sound. How are you doing, Benjamin? Very, very well. This is spooky season is very much upon us. Um, I'm, I'm getting well immersed in the festivities and I'm having a great time about it. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> how about you, producer Dan? Very good, very good. Thank you very much for asking. Are you getting into the festivities of the spooky season? Really getting into them. Properly stepping Here's a question. Are you boys going to parve parve a pumpkin? (laughs) That was very me. It was very, yeah. Ever since Um, you got the IQ test, I've just suddenly stuck. (laughs) Everything's wrong. Uh, Nah. Uh, Are you guys going to carve a pumpkin was what I was going to ask? Or are you not into that? I don't know what that means if you're not into it. It's a bit of a, I don't know if necessarily, I'm speaking for myself here, Mm. but necessarily if it's something that you do when you're alone. More of like a group activity or a, a couple. You could thing. carve a friend into it. I could, yeah, uh, yeah. And then me and the friend that I carve could carve a bumpkin together. I make him watch or her. Um, oh no, Dan, can I'm I move, back. Can I move on to you? It's quite a lot of work, isn't it, carving a pumpkin? Yeah, a lot that's of mess. what I meant. That's what I the meant. The mess is yeah, really getting a the, lot of mess. The guts out. Seeds. I once yeah. carved a uh, pepper, an orange pepper, because we didn't have pumpkins. They look oh, quite good, actually. That's good. With a little tea light inside it. I like that. And the whole pepper glowed. It was... I wasn't with you when you first said it, because I thought yeah. you were just... Yeah, but I like that. I thought you just meant you were cooking something and you just cut one in half. When he said I once carved a pepper, I spat my I blew my coffee out through my nose. <laughs> that's twice that happened to It's that. happened, yeah, in very quick succession. So. Sorry about that. No, it smells great. <laughs> but um, guys, before we start, we, um, we don't usually do this, but we got an email through and I, I was very touched by it and I thought oh. I'll give a little shout out. So a big shout out to Ryan and Brogan, who have been doing the... Um, amazing task of going over to Ukraine and delivering humanitarian aid work and delivering to villages at the front line and they said they'd be listening to the podcast whilst doing it and wow which is amazing one thing I think like we sometimes don't do enough guys is probably actually think people listen to this and it's amazing to know people doing such amazing jobs out there listen to this and it gives them a little bit of light relief and that's amazing so I want to say a big shout out to them and and anyone who puts us in their ears when they're having a difficult time and if we bring you any joy with our senseless chat um, that is amazing so yeah big shout out to Ryan and Brogan there. Ryan and Brogan cheers thank you and guys, we have been absolutely inundated with cult applications, so that is amazing. We're going to going to go through some of them at the end of the episode. Retention boys, that's how we keep them on the hook. Very smart. And uh, we'll go through some of them, not all of them, because there's a lot, and we'll be welcoming some people into the cult of ICMAP. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, we hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, which was actually the audience vote episode, uh, the Port Arthur Massacre. To stay well and truly in the loop with all things ICMAP, why not give us a follow on our socials, which is at Could Murder a Pod. After next week's series finale, we are going to be going on a little bit of a break, but you can stay very much in the loop of, of our Patreon episodes, which will still remain weekly, and everything that we're up to. We might do a few live streams. Who knows? It's uh, it's going to be spooky times and Christmas times, so maybe there'll be a maybe there'll be a couple of specials. We we don't know. It's a mystery. There might even be a little rap party or live one again, and someone might be drinking a little mega pint of wine again and being is a bit you, silly. Tom, is no, I haven't got an issue. <laughs> yeah, so this is the plot of the episode, guys. We went with a biggie, like Ben said from the very, very beginning. This could be our biggest season yet, and I think you know what? Big shout from him, and I think he's correct with that shout. It feels like it. Yeah, I think a lot of people have said a lot of heavy hitters. I know some people out there preferred the niche cases. Mm-hmm. Well, stay tuned for next week. Yeah, and but I think as well, you've got, you've got to think of it, when we're knocking these big ones down earlier on, a few series time, just think about, let's think of in six series time, we're going to be scraping the barrels and right one-offs. Yeah, Doreen stole a, a, a sandwich from the shop. We'll do a whole, a whole long episode on that, eh, hey, Dan? Doreen. Doreen. Yeah, it's usually Doreen, but um, <laughs> her mum's quite pretentious. We've already covered that one. 
struggling today. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> well, Ben, do you want to do the honours of announcing what this episode is today? So this week, it is the case of Dennis Nilsson, the kindly killer. First off, what do you think of that name, the kindly killer? Well, I, I had to Google, why, why did they call Dennis Nilsson the kindly killer? And it kind of makes sense now, but when I heard it for the first time, the kindly killer, it's for a very timid killer. Do you think there's someone out there who's called the kindling killer? The kindling killer. That could just a little kindling. take a long time, wouldn't it? Just shove it down the throat and just choke yeah. it. <laughs> the kindling killer. The so, kindling, yeah. In a Scottish accent, that sounds good. The kindling killer. I know you didn't know that? Oh, yeah, the kindling killer. Right. Yeah, you didn't know that, kindling killer. That's pretty good. But yes, uh, the kindly killer. We'll obviously go on later on to discuss why he is he is known as that. Mm. This is also known as the case of Dennis Nilsson, the Muswell Hill murderer, Des, and the <laughs> British Jeffrey Dahmer, which I've heard from a few other people. This was a bit before Dahmer, wasn't it? Yeah. There's, it, there's lots of correlations between them, but this one, he could be the American uh, Des. Yeah, absolutely. And last last series, it actually came down to Jeffrey Dahmer versus Des. And a little he, fight out, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, and the guy's voted for Dahmer. He voted for Dahmer. Yeah, Dahmer. And, but this is not on topic, but I always thought Dahmer was a lot taller than he is. Mm. In the pictures, I'm always like, oh, he's tall. He looks very he's tall. Just six foot. Which is tall. He's still tall. But I thought he was like... He seems more gangly than yeah. six foot would lead you to believe. I agree, I agree. But yeah, this case, we, we know a lot of people requested this, so we thought we definitely wanted to involve it this series. We had to be careful where we put it in the series, because obviously we had Donald Nielsen as well, so we mm. couldn't put these two close to one another. Would have got confusing. Everyone would be like, what, they've already done that! But no, we haven't. This is the kindly killer. That was the Black Panther. Anyway, Ben, like we um, have started to kind of do... At times, a little quote to start us off I think the series. Been more quotes than no quote yeah. episodes. I, yeah, I think that's fair. Huh? Do you want to do a little quote to start us off? You have got two big ones here, but if you want to do a little one, I'll do a little one. I'd also just quickly like to apologise oh. to any colonels out there that that listen, or family or loved ones of colonels. I made a comment a couple of weeks ago in the um, Hungerford massacre episode where. I didn't expect there to be many Colonel Millionaires. There could very well be some Colonel Millionaires out there after doing some further research. Uh, probably take them 10 years, but that's still quicker than... That's a very niche apology. I think yeah. about, about people are probably upset with other more I don't wider think insults. Yeah. Anyone have offended, I apologise. Vampire so, freaks, for yes. example. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've already apologised to them. But, co- sorry, Colonel. Um, Just the one. <laughs> sorry, Colonels. Stop saluting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Read your quote, please. Yes. And Bonds, can you lay some spooky undertones underneath this quote here? Loneliness is a long, unbearable pain. Have you started the quote? <laughs> That's good, to be fair. And it is. I've heard from Des. Loneliness is a long, unbearable pain. There was never a place for me in the scheme of things. I had become a living fantasy on a theme in dark, endless dirges. I made another world and real men would enter it and they would never really get hurt at all in the vivid, unreal laws of the dream. I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime. Lovely stuff. Spooky stuff. That is very spooky. <clears throat> Unsettling his old Des. Watched a couple of documentaries and there's footage of him just on video cameras. and Yeah, yeah a lot of home movie style mm. stuff of Des. There is indeed. So we're going to go into the early life now of Dennis Nilsson and see if there's any, which there are, clear, <laughs> clear red flags and turning points in his childhood and to see how he ended up as the, the kindly killer. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on the 23rd of November 1945 in the small coastal fishing town of Fraserburgh, Scotland, which is in Aberdeenshire. Do you do a... Fantastic accent. Dennis was the second of three children born to Elizabeth Doofy White, who went by Betty, and Ulav Magnus Moksheim. He had an older brother called Ulav Jr. and a younger sister called Sylvia. 
A lot of names so far. A lot, far. Of, names, a lot yeah. of names, yeah. Interestingly, Olav Sr. was a soldier in the Norwegian army and he met Betty five years before Dennis was born, whilst forming part of the Norwegian resistance during the German occupation of Norway, during which time some members of the Norwegian army had travelled to Scotland. After dating on and off for just over a year, Olav and Betty got married in 1942 and Olav would later adopt the surname Nilsson. Shortly before moving in with Betty's parents, neither of Betty's parents were fond of Olav, who was a heavy alcoholic. Betty's parents lived a pious lifestyle. They didn't smoke, they didn't drink alcohol, and they did not do anything on the Lord's Sunday. And all of the family meals that they had had to be prepared the day before. They did not approve of the radio being brought into the family house and considered going to the cinema a modern day sin. That sounds like a fun household to be in. Yeah, yeah. Why is food have to be prepared, prepared the day before? Because on the... On the Sunday. On the, oh. Yeah, so all the food has to be prepared every other Sunday. day. Oh, no, yeah. that would have been... Yeah. Well... Get ahead. Plan ahead, yeah. Make loads of soup. Uh, there's, there could be some blackouts this winter, and that's all been in the news lately. So, what? Doing, there's apparently going to be loads of blackouts in winter because there's not enough energy. So they're like t- telling you how to prepare for a blackout. That I mean, soup. Yeah, candles. Fork. The dynamic of the relationship between Ulav and Betty was quite unconventional. Ulav did not view marriage as a very serious commitment. You don't often hear that, and Ulav would spend large parts of his time away with the Norwegian army. When he did return to Betty, he was said to be extremely cold and distant, paying very little attention to Betty or their three children. Betty claimed that the marriage was loveless and that the pair had very much rushed into things. They were divorced just six years after getting married in 1948, though many have speculated that Ulav abandoned his wife and three children long before then. So apparently any time he wasn't away with the army, he would come home, say hello, go straight down the pub, spend all of the hours of the day down the pub. So, yeah, not a very happy home life. After the divorce, Elizabeth's parents helped to raise her three children, during which time Dennis became extremely fond of his grandpa, Andrew, and the pair grew extremely close, with some of Dennis's earliest memories being that of going to picnics and long coastal countryside hikes carried on his grandpa's shoulders. That's quite sweet. It's good memories to have, I guess. Yeah. I always remember being on my dad's shoulders and I didn't like that he had stubble. It just made my, I didn't like it. But now, it's all right. You still got on the shoulders now? Yeah. <laughs> Good old guy. Huh? Yeah. Poor guy. Good lad. Despite being only five years old, Dennis remembered his time with his grandfather vividly. He would also remember how upset he would feel every time his granddad left to hit the family home. His grandfather was a fisherman, so would often leave the family home for weeks at a time. He would describe his granddad as being the, his great hero and protector. Also stating that every time his grandfather went away, life would be empty until he returned. Dennis described his early years as the happiest and the most content of his life. Just quite eloquent way to put things. Great yeah. hero and protector. Life would be empty until he returned. Eloquent, isn't it? He's quite wordy, isn't he, Dennis? Very wordy, Nielsen, yeah. The following year, whilst fishing in the North Sea, Dennis's grandfather, Andrew, unfortunately passed away from a heart attack at the age of 62. And what would happen next would play one of the most pivotal moments in Dennis's life. His grandfather's body was brought back to the family home prior to being buried, where his mother asked a young Dennis if he wanted to see his grandfather. I did say see in quotation. We're seeing him. Yeah, but you don't. Well, you, you are seeing him, but she, she sort of framed it as, do you want to pop in and see granddad? Type of way. Pretty much word for word is what I've heard as well, which is strange. I don't think that's how it was framed. But Yeah. No one had told him he was dead when he went up. I don't think she did it as a trick, though. No, I'm not saying she's tried to trick him, but I would have said, you know, he is dead. Do you want to see him? You haven't dealt with many children, have you? <laughs> he is dead! Do you want to look? As we've just pointed out, there is conjecture uh, surrounding how this was explained or conveyed to Dennis. But either way, his mum said, Do you want to see your grandfather? To which Dennis said yes. He was then taken to a room where his grandfather's body had been placed. There, his mother told Dennis that he was sleeping and that he had gone to a better place. 
And this is the first time then, obviously, Dennis has come face to face with death. And also, I think that that time is when they used to put makeup on bodies and try and make them look lifelike. Mm. So um, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing for someone who is always great protector there, lay motionless. Dennis's ancestors had all been fishermen and they'd been carried down for generations. There are allegations that his great-grandparents and generations beyond them were largely inbred, who suffered from various mental health conditions and there were also multiple suicides in the family. Dennis, despite being a very high-energy, socially active young boy, became very distant, withdrawn and quiet following his grandfather's passing. He would often be found alone down by the local shipyards and Docklands, staring out into the ocean, watching the boats. Dennis would spend hours on end by himself down the harbour. He became a very shy, quiet and inwardly troubled young boy. When at home, Dennis would very much keep to himself, often retreating to his bedroom at any opportunity that he had. He very rarely got involved in any family activities and would shun any attempts of affection towards him from his mother or grandmother. Apparently as well, even as a baby, if, if someone tried to get near him and kiss him or give him a hug, immediately sort of push away and not, not want anything to do with that. Although at the same time, Dennis started to harbour harbor again. I mean, you wrote it, didn't you? I know, but I didn't see what I'd done there. Although at the same time, Dennis started to harbour a great deal of jealousy and resentment for affection and attention that was given to his older brother and younger sister by other members of the family. Dennis was very close with his younger sister, Sylvia, but he very much disliked his older brother, Ulav Jr., who he claimed was treated like the golden child. When Dennis turned 10, the Nielsen family, together with Betty's new partner, Andrew Scott, moved from Fraserburg to the village of Stricken, which is also in Aberdeenshire. Shortly before the move, Dennis was down by the seafront once again, staring out at the shore. When he entered somewhat tougher days, Dennis fell into the sea and slowly began to drown whilst panicking and flailing in his arms. As Dennis became submerged under the water, he slowly entered a peaceful state and had vivid hallucinations that his grandfather was there to pull him out of the ocean. A local boy had actually pulled Dennis out to safety, but the tranquility Dennis experienced whilst drowning is something that would stay with him for the rest of his life. Betty later married Andrew and the pair went on to have four children together in four years. That's a lot of kids. That is... Together with the three children from a previous marriage to Ulove, the family of nine lived together in a small semi-detached house. Dennis initially resented Andrew due to the fact that he viewed him as extremely strict, but would later come to respect him. Yeah, so male role models in his life seemed to play quite a significant part. The biological father left when he was very, very young, very close to his grandfather, initially disliked Andrew, but grew to like him. Andrew Scott. Throughout his school years, Dennis would do very little to socially interact with other children and would very much keep to himself. He also never attempted to date or engage with people that he found attractive. He very much felt confused regarding what and who he found attractive. In class, Dennis displayed signs of having a very high IQ, probably around 125. Do you do a 10 question thing on? I think I only got one wrong and people were impressed by that. Were some of the predictions 15? <laughs> Fucking, I, I knew I shouldn't have put that. <laughs> and had a particular passion for art and history though he would do everything that he could to avoid being involved in any kind of physical education at school. Looking at him, I was trying to work out what I could see him being a runner. Yeah. Just for miles. How tall is he? High jump. Don't know about swimming. He's not got a good track record of yeah, that. Yeah, he doesn't like the water. <clears throat> Javelin. Just naming sports now. Yeah. Hockey. Dennis was bullied at school by one older boy who viewed Dennis as small and insignificant. And it is alleged that the bullying from this boy actually escalated to the point that the boy sexually assaulted Dennis on numerous occasions. But Dennis did not find this experience unpleasant and on occasion even became aroused by it. As Dennis entered his teenage years, he became increasingly aware of the fact he was attracted to boys and had many homosexual dreams of an erotic nature. This initially caused Dennis to feel deeply confused and ashamed of himself, so he did everything he could to keep these thoughts and feelings to himself. 
Dennis felt that his confusion regarding his sexuality made him an outcast, an embarrassment and an alien compared to the rest of the society at the time, and that his inner joys and longings had to be kept secret from the world. He considered himself an outsider, an abomination, who was forced not to be anything true outside of his head. On one occasion, Dennis recognised that many of the boys he found attractive had similar facial features to his younger sister Sylvia, so he molested Sylvia, thinking that the homosexual attraction that he had been feeling was derived from how deeply he cared about his younger sister. He felt nothing when he did this to Sylvia, although he felt that as a result of his actions, he may now be bisexual rather than homosexual. A lot to unpick from that, but I mean, the fact that all the boys he finds attractive is think looks like a sister, yeah. therefore... Oof. Yeah, it's quite yeah. a warped mm. thought process there. Definitely. His sexually inappropriate behaviours towards his siblings would not stop at Sylvia. On a couple of occasions, Dennis would creep over to his older brother, Ulav Jr.'s bedside and attempt to get in bed with him whilst he slept. Dennis would then begin to slowly caress and fondle Ulav Jr., who woke up while this was happening and berated Dennis in front of the other siblings. From this moment onwards, Ulav Jr. was convinced that Dennis was gay and would regularly bully and belittle him in public, at school and in front of the rest of the Nielsen family. Ulav would always refer to Dennis as a hen, which is Scottish slang for girl, calling him Den the Hen. Patsy McKenzie, who produced a documentary about Dennis, said that the line between what is true and what is fantasy in Dennis's mind is unclear. Quoting, How much actually took place and how much was in his imagination, obviously nobody knows that but him. So that's something that's going to happen. We're very much going off of Dennis's recollection of yeah. his childhood and his upbringing. He's got away with words and he does like to embellish things slightly, I feel. And that is something that is very much going to continue as he goes into his teenage years. Dennis decided to join the army cadets at the age of 14, with some speculating that he longed to live a life similar to the stories he had heard of his biological father, but also viewing the regimented lifestyle of a soldier as a chance to escape what he viewed as the clutches of his hometown. With the exception of being confused about his sexuality, being exposed to death at an early age and being bullied by his older brother and one older peer at school, Dennis had a very pleasant childhood and he would later note that his mother and stepfather did everything they could to provide the best possible care and support to all of the Nielsen children during their childhood. However, he was also ashamed of the fact that the family were poorer than most, were very much working class and were doing very little to better themselves and he wasn't going to let that happen to him. Dennis left school in 1961 at the age of 16 and he initially took on employment at a canning factory, but this only lasted three weeks before he canned it. He then informed his family that he planned on joining the army to train up as a chef. This would become an absolute game changer for Dennis, who passed all of his entry exams before enlisting for nine years of service, starting his training in September of that year at St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot. SOB in Aldershot. Yeah, wow. Studied a son of a bitch in order to show. That son of a bitch makes some good old clams. Dennis took to his training as well as military life exceptionally well. He adored the elements of travel that came with his training, including being part of a military ceremonial parade in London that was attended by the Queen Elizabeth II. Rest in peace. Dennis described his years in Aldershot as some of the happiest moments of his life. So although Dennis was saying this time was a particularly fond part of his life, it wasn't without its turmoil. Surrounded by a predominantly male environment, Dennis's inner thoughts and feelings regarding sexuality became even more heightened and conflicted. To keep his sexual preferences hidden from his colleagues, Dennis would bathe alone in a private room rather than showering in shared space with other soldiers. So he feared that he would get an erection if he was shared the showers with the other soldiers, and he was able to masturbate to photographs and artwork depicting males in the privacy of his own bathroom. Tell you what you just smashed then, which could trip some people up. Shared the showers with other soldiers. You smashed that, mate. Shared the showers with other soldiers. That's hard to say. 
Three years after enlisting, Dennis was shipped out to what was at the time West Germany to serve as a private in the 1st Battalion of Royal Fusiliers. Fusilier. Thank you. you. The particular regiment that Dennis Fusilier. was... Fusilier. <laughs> a really big space. The particular regiment that Dennis was housed with were described as the hard-working boozy lot. It is whilst stationed here that Dennis began to drink large amounts of alcohol, and this is also where we start to see some similarities with the Jeffrey Dahmer case. Dennis would apparently drink copious amounts of alcohol in order to become more confident and more masculine around his colleagues. As in, it's not like lad, he's not going like this, going, oh, I love chicks, is he? He's just, beers. just the fact that he can handle it or he likes booze and he thinks it makes him more manly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember us going to house parties and waiting outside for a bit and down in a few tins. Yeah, yeah. And then going in. Smoking um, condensation cigarettes, choo-choo train. No, I'm talking about actually what happened. Oh, sorry. On one particularly boozy night, Dennis ended up going out to the local beer halls. And it's here that he met a local German boy who ended up taking Dennis back home with him to his flat. Dennis awoke the following morning on the boy's bedroom floor to notice that the boy was almost completely unconscious on his bed next to him. So the image of this boy, uh, almost unconscious and completely naked, captivated Dennis and he became overwhelmingly aroused by the thought of having an attractive, slender, young and completely immobile male partner that he could do anything he wanted to and with. These thoughts slowly consumed Dennis and escalated to the point that he would fantasise about having male sexual partners who were entirely unconscious or even dead. Instead of acting on these fantasies, Dennis decided to first try his hand at becoming the victim of one of these supposed situations. He would regularly pretend to be heavily intoxicated to the point that he would pass out around his colleagues in the hopes that one of them would try and make sexual advances on his supposedly unconscious body. There are conflicting reports on whether or not this actually worked, according to Dennis, which it, I feel like he's just embarrassed by the fact they did it and it didn't work. So he's just yeah. claiming that, oh, it could have happened. That's the tricky thing with this case, because like we say, like, this is coming through Dennis's own words, a lot of this stuff that happened. And also he's written many different kind of variations of some of the same stories. Yeah. So it just depends which which book you read of his or which kind of account you're taking from him. He liked kind of painting his own picture, really, didn't he? So after serving for two years in West Germany, Dennis briefly returned to Eldershot, where he completed his official catering exam. He was then sent to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway, and then the following year he was deployed to serve as a cook at the infamous Al-Mansura prison in South Yemen. Here Dennis took up the keen fascination with photography. This particular post at Al-Mansura prison was far more dangerous than anything Nilsson had done before, with several of his colleagues being killed in action. This goes back to what Tom was saying about taking Dennis's perspective and, and taking his word for it because he does change his story very many times. So Dennis actually claimed that he was kidnapped by a local taxi driver who beat him unconscious before placing him in the boot of his cab. According to Dennis, when the taxi driver opened the boot, Dennis attacked him and beat him unconscious with a tyre jack. He then locked the taxi driver in his own boot before fleeing the area. So that's gone awfully for the taxi driver. While serving at Al-Mansura, Dennis, for the first time, had his own private room. It is here that his dark sexual fantasies as well as the renewed exposure to death slowly became intertwined. This part does get quite strange. Dennis would masturbate in front of a large mirror in his room that was adjusted to face his body when he was in a prone position. He would adjust the mirror so that he could only see his own body without its head and began to have vivid fantasies about engaging in sex with men whilst also looking at his own body. During these moments, he would also think about different traumas and near-death experiences in his life, which would enable him to climax. Dennis would begin to fantasise about the possibility of degrading and having sex with his own corpse. So Dennis basically had the impossible fantasy of wanting to have sex with himself, but only if he was dead. It's very complicated, isn't it? 
Yeah, it does. It's, it's murky. It's niche, it, isn't yes. it? It's niche. Yes. niche. Oh, do you have a kink, Dennis? Oh, <laughs> don't worry about it. No, Dennis, what is it? Well, I quite like the thought of myself being dead and me being alive at the same time and fucking my own body. <laughs> Dennis, I think I'm going home. <laughs> So Dennis had a favourite fantasy that he would use when he masturbated. He imagined that a scruffy woodsman... Did you make this this true? No, this is all true. This sounds like a very Ben-worded... No. He imagined that a very scruffy woodsman found his dead body in the woods, washes his body down, and then gives him a proper burial. By the way, because we're not precursing this with... This sounds like you. Please don't put that in, but... <laughs> no, but it sounds like... Yeah, I know Scruffy what you're woodsman yeah. is kind of... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's I'm not, saying, uh, not my word. I'm not saying this is your fantasy. No, well... I mean... No. No. The woodsman then digs Dennis's body back up, gives him a hand job, and this action brings only Dennis's penis back to life. It ejaculates, the rest of his body is dead. Now that just feels like you made that all up. I promise you. I promise you. So we'll leave this the, in. So Maybe the, you should read it all again without... No, I don't think so. Well, the woodsman okay. wanks off Dennis's dead body and yeah. only his penis comes back to life. I'm thinking like Mr. Yeah. Hanky Biff, it was a cock. Yeah. yeah. Hello! <laughs> and then it ejaculates and the, but the rest of the body is dead do you think it yeah. comes and the penis is dead or the penis is stuck they're going oh, what, what do I do, I do now yeah, what happens next you penis, buy me a drink <laughs> penis lives to be a hundred years old <laughs> oh. oh I've had quite the life what have you done Mr Penis oh. sit back I'm going to tell you a story about a woodsman oh, I've got a stiff neck <laughs> cool thing about fantasies they can be anything you're making it sound like you did think of it I didn't make of that okay so Dennis would also regularly fantasise about the 19th century oil painting by Theodore Jericho, The Wrath of Medusa, which is quite a famous painting depicting an older male holding the naked bodies of two young, unconscious or deceased males on a raft. It's one of Dennis's favourite paintings. Dennis returned to the UK and served in Plymouth for a year before serving the following year in Cyprus. His regiment was then sent back out to Germany in 1970, this time to West Berlin. It is here that Dennis had his first sexual encounter with a female, a sex worker that he had met whilst out drinking. Dennis noted that he found sex with women overrated and depressing, though he would regularly brag about this encounter to all of his colleagues. In 1971, Dennis returned to the UK, where he actually ended up cooking for the Queen's Royal Guard. And the following year, he served as a cook for a different regiment in the Shetland Islands. Shortly after this, Dennis made the drastic decision to leave the army altogether, having served for 11 years, and he'd managed to work his way up to the rank of corp. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But I did think army chefs and army cooks are pretty interesting. Play the jingle. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Interesting facts. So this week, obviously, I did a lot of interesting facts last week. So I don't want to go. Over, and it's a big episode. We've got lots to talk about. So I kept keep the interesting facts this week quite thin, narrow, short, like short. Keep them quite short. Thanks. Keep them quite narrow. <laughs> thin. You dafty. So silly me. So whilst also looking at the, the colonel's salary, and apologies again to those those people out there, I got onto the subject of army cooks. And did you know that army cooks' salaries differ massively if you compare British army cooks to American army cooks? Is that the conversion rate? or? I mean, the pound is struggling. 
In the UK, an army cook can earn anywhere from 18 to 22,000 pounds per year. Whilst over in America, an army cook. Oh my God. Sorry. <laughs> so. Can earn approximately $47,000 per year, which, at the time of recording, is 72% above the national average salary in America. Really? Yeah, absorb that information, please. What's the food like, I hear you ask? Well, it varies, but it is largely high in protein, fruits, and vegetables, of course. Another thing I thought of is we cover a lot of cases where they went to the army, but they were an admin worker or they did computers or, and chefing. I don't think they BTK you... was there for like admin. Okay. Do army cooks see much action? Although there is less risk of injury or fatality than fighting on the front line or in the bomb disposal unit, army chefs are still exposed to combat zones and can be vulnerable to flying ammunition and bombings. But sometimes army chefs do go to battle. They go to battle, Tom and Dan, in culinary competitions. Oh, that sounds important. Yeah, that's right. So some of the larger military bases in the UK, and probably worldwide, house cook-off competitions. Masterchef? More like Blasterchef. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Thank you, mate. That is good, yeah. Masterchef, more like Blasterchef. Don't repeat it. Yeah. So that was, yeah. There you go. Some facts for you. So for the final couple of months of 1972, Dennis returned to Stricken to live with his family whilst contemplating his next career move. During the short period of time that Dennis returned home, he was teased relentlessly by his older brother and stepfather for not having a wife or girlfriend, whilst his mother seemed more concerned by the matter that Dennis is 27 at this point. So not a very warm welcome for Dennis back there no. in Stricken. One evening, Dennis, together with his brother Ulov and his wife, as well as another couple, got together to watch a documentary about gay men. The group watched the documentary in disgust, with the exception of Dennis, who became agitated by the film and his companions' reactions to it. This escalated to a physical fight between Dennis and Olav, with Olav getting the better of Dennis and informing the mother that Dennis was gay. Dennis immediately packed up his things and informed his family that he was moving to London to become a police officer. And Olav made a bloody sly about that, didn't he, saying, oh yeah, that's one of the YMCA. By April of 1973, Dennis had completed his training to become a junior constable of the Metropolitan Police. Within his first few weeks, he had performed several arrests, but he never actually had to physically subdue or restrain a member of the public, which Dennis had quite hoped for. He made very few friends with his colleagues, and as a result, he began to miss the camaraderie of the army. So, whilst in London, Dennis began to spend a lot of his spare time either drinking alone in his flat or frequenting local gay pubs. It is here that he would become very much immersed in the local gay scene, and this would lead to Dennis's first consensual sexual experiences with other men. He would go on to have numerous one-night stands with men that he met in these pubs, though interestingly, Dennis would never let another man penetrate him because the thought of anyone else entering his body made him jealous of himself. When you do look at it, you do think it's like... Probably one of the most arrogant thing you could do is to wank over yourself in a mirror, right? Yeah. It's up there. And then not letting anyone fuck you because you want to fuck yourself. If you were dead. Yeah, no, but... Just more arrogant in a way. Well, no, why don't you fuck yourself more because you're dead? Yeah. I don't know. It's just a very... Wild. Wild thoughts. Very, yeah, complicated. Dennis continued to practice fairly out-of-the-ordinary habits of masturbation. He would paint his skin white with wet baby powder and draw black lines under his eyes with charcoal to make himself appear more dead, before masturbating in front of the mirror, imagining himself degrading his own corpse. Despite these many encounters, Dennis still felt very empty and unfulfilled. He also began to feel depressed after each interaction and considered them soul-destroying. Dennis longed for a partner that he could be with for more than just one night, and again, we see similar patterns emerge in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, so it's the idea of people leaving, isn't it? He wants control. But I think it's different, because I think Jeffrey's. 
afraid of people actually leaving where it's more Dennis wants to control them I think yeah I can I can see that and I think there's a bit more of an arrogance about Dennis than there was Jeffrey was more afraid to show his vulnerabilities whereas mm. Dennis claims to have none over the next several months Dennis found it hard to manage his social life as well as career and felt that the two were interfering with one another as he was starting to be noticed by friends from the pub whilst out on duty this together with the fact that Dennis had inherited £1,000 from his biological father's passing pushed Dennis to resign from the police force so that Dennis then took on a role as a part-time security guard, which gave him a lot more time for his social life. However, Dennis did not enjoy the role. Upon browsing for jobs at his local job centre on Denmark Street, Dennis realised that he would actually be a brilliant careers advisor for unemployed people searching for work. So he started to work as a civil servant based at the job centre on Denmark Street. It is here that Dennis began to refer to himself as Des, and he was a quiet, hard-working team member. And despite some issues with attendance, he would always be courteous to others and often offered to pick up overtime at very short notice. Dennis worked his way up and eventually earned both a transfer and a promotion. And he was moved to the Kentish Town Job Centre where he took on the role as executive officer. Dennis was now earning good money and spending large parts of his time working at the job centre. He would often take on the cases of particularly young men or immigrant men and would very rarely go out of his way to help female job seekers. This gave Dennis both access and favour to some very vulnerable males. One night whilst walking home from work, Dennis broke up a fight between two men who were trying to attack 20-year-old David Gallican. Dennis immediately sympathised with David but also found him highly attractive. He invited David back to his flat where the pair shared drinks through to the early hours. Having learnt more about David and now knowing the fact that David was gay, unemployed and had recently moved to London, Dennis posed the question of the two living together. All in one night, that's a, that's a big move. It's a whirlwind. It is a whirlwind. To which David agreed. Dennis would go on to refer to David as Twinkle, and there are lots of home movies of the couple together, interviewing one another and playing with their dog, Bleep. Do you know why it's called Bleep, Ben? I don't. Apparently when um, it was a puppy, there's a noise it used to make. Bleep. I don't really know exactly how that would work. But... Bleep. <coughs> bleep. Bleep, 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 bleep. Never heard a dog go bleep. There you go. To do this, Dennis knew he needed a much bigger flat, and using the money he had recently inherited from his father, Dennis signed the lease of the now infamous ground floor flat of 195 Melrose Avenue, under the condition, agreed with the landlord, that Dennis and Twinkle would have sole access to the property's rear garden. The pair basically used the excuse that because they had bleep, they needed access, and exclusive access, to the garden. After a year of living together in Melrose Avenue, the couple began to lose interest in one another and began to sleep in separate beds, often bringing other partners back to the flat to sleep with. Tensions boiled over during one night in May 1977 to the point that Dennis asked David to move out of the property and the relationship subsequently ended. There are similar home videos of those two and they actually seem quite sweet and cute together, don't yeah, they? Yeah, good uh, back and forth. A lot of patter, good banter together. Nice couple. So, yeah, it's sad that that kind of didn't work out because if that would have worked out in a where then we would have more than likely not had the uh, the future that was cut to come for Dennis. So over the next year, Dennis would hold several short-term relationships and often offered these young men the option of moving in with him, with none of them showing any interest. All of the relationships Dennis entered failed very quickly. This is hard to say. Basically, a lot of the men that Dennis met felt that he wasn't talking to them or with them or at them, but rather sort of projecting conversation as if to be having a conversation with himself to them. So he was saying all the things he wanted to say for himself to hear. It goes back to the fantasy he has of, of doing things to himself. Mm. He doesn't find other people attractive. He finds so it's himself more like he's attractive. pretending the other person's himself. Yes. Okay. So he's having conversations with other people. And people figured that how they figured this out, I don't know. Because that is the part. Dennis. Yeah. Another beer, Des. 
Yes, please, Des. Okay, that, yeah, that's easier to say. So Dennis would pretend that he's talking to himself with company. Yeah. Okay, there you go. That's it's kind of an interesting way to put it, yeah. Yeah, just... Yeah. Sorry. That's yeah. all right. No, hey, yeah. hey, 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 hey. No, that's apologize. Apologies. This coupled with Dennis's increased dependence on alcohol resulted in Dennis spiraling out of control. He became incredibly quick to anger, highly frustrated with the majority of the population, and he began to harbour a great deal of resentment for all the one-night stands he was having. Dennis began to limit leaving his flat altogether, drinking copious amounts of lager and spirits, and also began to question whether or not he felt he deserved to be alive at all. A quote from Dennis of the time is, I started down the avenue of death and depression of a new kind of flatmate. It is here that Dennis's bitterness and frustration, twinned with fantasies and traumas of his earlier life, combines in the most lethal of ways. And now we're going to go into the timeline of Dennis Nilsson, the kindly killer. 8th of February 1983. It is a miserable cold evening in Muswell Hill, North London, but the frost and the cold air is not enough to cover the unusual stench that is coming from outside the garden drain at 23 Cranley Gardens. A plumber has been called out to investigate the cause for complaint and he is standing over the hole in the ground, perplexed and sickened. 23 Cranley Gardens is a split property with different flats and the collection of tenants have called in a plumber due to their block toilets and sinks and a terrible smell coming from the drain area in the garden. Michael Catron, the plumber, roots around inside the drain and is quickly horrified to discover a flesh-like substance along with numerous small bones. Oh, stinks in here. He, oh, come back tomorrow. I haven't got the right tools. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just still at this. He's done a big turn. <laughs> he suspects they may be of human origin, but calls his supervisor to ask for advice on what to do. As the light is fading quickly into the evening, the two men decide to come back again in the morning to take a closer look when the light is better. Torch. Torch, yes, that would have been very useful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Even a rag on a stick with lit. Yes. Fumes, <sighs> if the fumes are toxic, yes. Yeah. So if it sticks down there and I think there's human remains. All right, see you tomorrow. <laughs> 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 it's fucking see you later. Prior to leaving the property, Catron informs the tenants of his suspected findings. A cool and collected Dennis Nielsen, who has returned from work by this point, calmly comments, It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. KFC. Don't flush that. The 9th of February, 1983. Early the next morning, Michael Catron returns to Cranley Gardens with a supervisor in tow. The two men lift off the drain cover and are surprised to discover it has been completely cleared out. Alarm bells begin to ring for them, but then Catran continues to dig around to see if they can find any further evidence. He quickly stumbles across some small bones that look as if they belong to a human hand in the pipe that connects to the top floor flat. The tenant of that particular flat is Dennis Nilsson. Police are called immediately and Detective Chief Inspector Jay is assigned to the case. DCI Jay speaks to Nilsson's neighbours who inform the policeman that he works at the local job centre and he usually arrives home at exactly the same time each evening. DCI Jay decides to wait for Nilsson to return home at 5.30pm. When he does as expected, Nilsson is greeted by Jay and two other police officers and he is told that they would like to ask him some questions in relation to the block drains. Nilsson casually invites the officers up to his attic flat where upon entering they immediately hit the familiar putrid smell. There is no mistaking the smell of death. People often talk about the smell. It's not something you can just, it's just sits foot heavy in the mm. air. It goes in your clothes and just kind of, it, yeah, it's just a horrific, horrific and sight. Nilsson was still very calm at this point. He was mm. saying, what, what, what are police doing? Uh, wanted to talk to me about my drains. Mm. But uh, it would all go very wrong very quickly for him. DCIJ informs Nilsson that the drain blockage has in fact been caused by that of human remains, to which Nilsson feigned surprise, responding, good grief, how awful. 
So he, he is a bit slimy, isn't he, with all this? Mm. And he's a bit smarmy. Jay he left, left his own family thinking he was, you know, didn't want to be, he felt he was the exception to the family, thought he was too good for them. Didn't want to follow in their footsteps. Looked down on the fact they were working class. Slimy. Jay eyeballs the slim, unimposing, spectacle-wearing man in front of him and replies in a serious voice, don't mess about, where's the rest of the body? Nilsson simply raises his hand and points towards the wardrobe in the corner of the room. DCI Jay and his company and officers open the wardrobe to find two black bin bags bulging with human remains. Like a wicked Santa. Yes, very wicked. Forcing back the rising bile in their throats, they immediately arrest Nilsson, who calmly admits that he is responsible and willing to divulge all information. He is driven to Hornsey Police Station, where he shocks the policeman further by admitting it is not just one or two bodies, but more like 15 or 16. The police quickly realise they have much bigger case on their hands than they originally suspected, and now they are dealing with a serial killer. And Nilsson was absolutely loving this as well. He was Singing like a canary, Ben. Absolutely. A big fan of budgies. They're like, can you just tell us? Oh, sorry. I was in a day slash trance. He was taking a lot of pride in the fact that he felt he was giving all of these officers the biggest case of their lives. February the 10th, 1983, the police needn't have worried about a stretched out interrogation as no sooner has Dennis sat down, he begins to talk. In fact, he doesn't stop. It's almost as if he is proud, proud to share the details of his horrific crimes and he shares away without a glimmer of remorse. Dennis Nilsson would later go on to describe the day of his arrest as the day that help came. Apparently when they asked him, um, why did you do it? Apparently he turns around and goes, well, I was hoping you could tell me. He got very fascinated in his own psyche, didn't he? Afterwards, he wanted, he, wanted to know, he wanted to know what made him do it, which mm. kind of feels like you're slightly just passing the back a bit. Yeah, I can, I can, I can He's like, well, it wouldn't be, it's not my fault, something made me do it. Mm. Later that day, a further police search is conducted at Nilsson's flat in Cranley Gardens, where they discover more human remains in a small tea chest and also in the bathroom of the flat. Nilsson also makes another shocking revelation. Cranley Gardens isn't the only makeshift graveyard. He admits to also murdering more men and disposing of their bodies at his previous address in Cricklewood, London. Uh, I used to live in Cricklewood for a very short period of time. With this news, the police... Damn. I used to live in Crookwood for about two weeks. Is that where you had the little, really little bit? Nah. With this news, the police open up their search to 195 Melrose Avenue, and it is here that we must go back in time to the scene of Nilsson's first murder. <laughs> December 29th, 1978. Nilsson meets 14-year-old Stephen Holmes in his local pub, the Cricklewood Arms. The underage teenager has been struggling to purchase alcohol when Nilsson steps in with the offer to buy the young boy a drink. Stephen happily accepts the offer and the two start off a conversation, which leads to further friendly drinks and eventually with Stephen agreeing to Nilsson's offer of a hot meal and more beverages back at his Melrose Avenue flat. The two drink into the night, passing out next to each other on Nilsson's bed. The next morning, Nilsson awakes to find a still sleeping Stephen and is consumed with a desire to keep this boy close to him and prevent him from leaving forever. He takes a tie from his collection, wrapping it around Stephen's neck and pulls tightly, strangling the young boy to unconsciousness. He then drowns him in an ice-cold bucket of water. The Kindly Killer, Ben. Mm. This is the, one of the reasons why they believe that he's called the Kindly Killer, because he wanted to kill people with basically so they didn't feel any pain. I mean, that's still, they're a kind of, knock him out first. Strangulation via tie, I wouldn't say that's too kindly. No, it's definitely not. But then, also though, why not strangle him till death? Just shoot me. Pardon? Just shoot me. That's Loud though, isn't it? True, but it's rather be shot than strangled. Yeah, that's what they call the kind of killer. It's yeah. essentially it was for, not for pain. Once Stephen's life has been extinguished, Nilsson proceeds to bathe the corpse in the bath, 
a ritual that he would also extend to his victims to come. So that kind of ties in with the fantasy he had earlier on about the uh, scruffy woodsman bathing the body. He then lays the body back in the bed and spends the night sleeping next to the dead boy. Nielsen eventually puts Stephen's body under the floorboards in the flat, where he's kept for several months before the body begins to seriously rot and decay. When it is no longer fathomable to keep the corpse there, Nielsen cuts up the corpse, lights a bonfire in the back garden, and burns the remains. In order to mask the smell of burning flesh, he throws an old rubber tar on top of the flaming pile, which does the trick and does not attract any unwanted attention from nosy neighbours. Tires do really smoke though. I remember being at a party in, in a woods once and trying for a tire and that. Straight away, people were there to be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Black bellowing smoke. Black bellowing smoke. Mm. In 1979, Nielsen has a close brush with the law when student Andrew Ho reports him to the police for attempting to strangle him during an initially consensual bondage play session. However, Andrew refuses to press charges when the police make him uncomfortable about his sexuality and Nielsen is not investigated further. Nielsen was a gay man living in a particularly homophobic time. Although he did have relationships with men throughout the years, they were mainly short-lived and society at the time made it unacceptable to be openly gay. So you go back to that movie he was watching with his brother and their friends. They were really using some quite horrific terms to describe homosexual relationships and it was very, very much frowned on at the time. Nielsen could often be found stalking out the seedy bars of London's West End, where he would eventually meet the majority of his victims. On the 3rd of December 1979, Nielsen goes on to claim the life of his second known victim, 23-year-old Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden, after meeting in the pub under similar circumstances to Stephen Holmes. Two men engage in a day of sightseeing in London, followed by the promise of drinks and a home-cooked meal at Nielsen's flat. Once again, Nielsen succumbs to his desperate urge of not letting the young man leave, and he strangles Kenneth with a cord from a set of headphones. Nielsen once again washes the corpse, shaving Kenneth's chest and dousing him in talcum powder. He then spends time caressing and holding the, quote, beautiful corpse of the dead young man, even going so far as to take photographs of and watch TV with. It is also reported that he engaged in sexual activities with the corpse and held conversations with him for the next two weeks before the body started to decay. Kenneth's shelf life as Nielsen's companion was up, and he's also placed under the floorboards. The following year, in May of 1980, Nielsen meets 16-year-old Martin Duffy at a train station. Martin has run away from his Birkenhead home and is relieved when the invitation of a bed for the night comes in the form of a seemingly kind Dennis Nielsen. The pair go back to the flat, where just like the other victims, Nielsen strangles the young boy before finishing the deed by drowning him in the kitchen sink. Once again, Nielsen chooses to bathe and groom the boy's body and then take him to bed where his dead corpse is masturbated over. Martin is shoved away in a cupboard for a number of days before being transferred to the underfloor graveyard. 26-year-old William Sutherland becomes Nielsen's next victim in August of 1980. Once again, Nielsen encounters Scottish Billy in a pub. The two strike up conversation, but Nielsen quickly becomes irritated with Billy, who he considers to be brash and loud. In this instance, Billy is actually the one to suggest to go back to Nielsen's flat and continue what he clearly considers a fun evening. Or perhaps he believes that he will make some money out of Nielsen. Although Billy is straight, he works as a sex worker to make ends meet after not being able to find steady work on his move to London. As with his previous victims, Nielsen proceeds to strangle and kill Billy. However, this time, he does so using his bare hands, later recalling that he did so because he considered Billy to be a pest. It must be mentioned that although Nielsen is able to recall the names of some of his victims, he is actually unable to identify the majority of them. He can recall some specific features, such as tattoos or particular items of clothing, but he is also vague about the dates that the murders were committed. 
However, one pattern that he does always follow is that his victims are always vulnerable young men or teenagers who Nilsson can take advantage of and easily lure back to his flat with the promise of food, alcohol and shelter. I imagine as well a lot of these guys were unemployed, drifters, travelling down to London for the opportunity. My money is on the fact that he told them, I'm also a civil servant at the job centre. Yeah. Come and have a drink and then in the morning we'll go and get you all set up. We could think in a way him working at the job centre, he's learned how people behave, where uh, people who are in that situation hang out, kind of things they're after. Maybe it is, like, they know they are, like, they are after a warm meal and the place. For... So it's, he's kind of doing his research mm. during the week. And like we've done in many other cases, Sutcliffe, Picton, they're picking off people that society basically look down on and forget about. And what society at that time he considers won't be missed, won't be searched for. Between the autumn of 1980 and the autumn of 1981, Nilsson admits to murdering a further seven or eight men at the Melrose Avenue property, all using the same manner of strangulation and drowning to commit the act. In September 1981, the final victim to lose their life at 195 Melrose Avenue is homeless orphan Malcolm Barlow. Nilsson takes the young man under his wing, under the ruse of being a concerned citizen, after Malcolm suffers an epileptic fit on the street outside Nilsson's home. Once again, Nilsson commits murder via strangulation. By this point, there's literally no physical room left under the floorboards of the property, and Nilsson has to stow Malcolm's body away in a kitchen cupboard. In fact, the flat has become a cesspit of death, and Nilsson's having to spray the flat numerous times a day with insect repellent to ward off the flies and maggots that are reproducing at a rapid rate. Oh, not nice. No? No. I've decided. He fends off complaints from his neighbours about the putrid smell, blaming it on structural issues of the property, but he knows he needs to come up with a new plan and reconsider his victim's resting places. Having trained in butchery during his time in the army, he puts his knowledge of filleting animals into practice by dismembering his victims with a kitchen knife. After cutting the bodies up, he would then boil them down in a large pan before creating a bonfire with them. Once all suspected evidence had burned away, Nilsson would then rake the charred bones of flesh around the garden. He's reported to have at least three of these big bonfires in the time he lived at 195 Melrose Avenue, but there clearly was not enough suspicion aroused by his actions because not a single neighbour ever complained. Big bonfires, you're not going to really ask questions, are you? No. Especially if he's putting tyres and stuff on it, it's not going to be a smell. I have no questions. You have no questions? No questions. Your Honour. In October of 1981, Nilsson moves into the attic flat at 23 Cranley Gardens, a few miles from his previous address and now graveyard. His murderous activities do not diminish, however, and in March of 1982, John Howlett becomes the first victim to be murdered at Nilsson's new address. After meeting at a local pub, the two head back to Cranley Gardens, where the 23-year-old John is strangled whilst he sleeps. Yet he wakes up and puts up a fierce struggle against Nilsson, who eventually manages to overpower him enough to send John into a state of unconsciousness before finishing him off by drowning him in the bath. As Cranley Gardens does not have the convenient floorboards that Melrose Avenue did, Nilsson has to come up with an alternative method of disposal. He dismembers John's body before flushing fleshy body parts and internal organs down the toilet, whilst dispersing various bones within the rubbish. As a result of John's struggle, Nilsson has bruises for a number of days afterwards and has to make his excuses to inquiring colleagues of how he got them. What excuses would you use, Ben? I did something the other day, actually. What? I backed into a door handle. Where was the bruise? On my Just back. above the anus. <laughs> <laughs> so what would the excuse be? Got into a duster with Tom. Duster? Yeah. Yeah, you'd be bruised up, boy. Just a little bruise. Following John Howlett's murder, another man, 21-year-old Carl Stotter, would almost fall victim to Nilsson's heinous ways. Nilsson attempted to strangle him with a sleeping bag zip after a night out, and when Carl regained consciousness, he found himself being held underwater 
in an ice cold bath. Sleeping bag zip. In the old days, there was like, you know, like a pull and it gets tighter. That's not the zip, is it? It's not the zip. You absolutely, it's a quick and sharp reply from you. But isn't that the bit that you pull and it just That's gets tighter? That's the That's the cord. Yeah, I feel like you could strangle someone easier with a sleeping bag cord rather than a sleeping bag zip. Mm, this is according to Nielsen, how it went. <sighs> fantastic. Not fantastic, someone. No, well. Yeah. Please continue. Yeah. For some reason, Nilsson does not complete the killing and he allows Carl to go free. Carl reports the attack to the police, but upon learning he is gay, they dismiss his allegations as nothing more than a lover's tiff. A lover's tiff where you've been strangled and woken up when they're drowning you. That's quite a tiff. And that's it. And it, it, it even, it's very obvious to say, but even more similarities with the Jeffrey Dahmer case when police yeah. are just literally not yeah. listening to the victims, not taking the word for it, being racist and homophobic and just sending them back on the street. Yeah. Carl eventually ends up mentally blocking out the event and it will only be brought back into the light when he recounts a recurring dream he keeps having about being strangled to a nurse. This nurse will ultimately put two and two together and later on inform the police that she feels that Carl may have been a victim of Nilsson's. Carl will later go on to testify against Nilsson in court and his evidence will help to secure a guilty verdict against a multiple murderer. Sometime in autumn 1982, Nilsson meets 27-year-old Graham Allen in Soho and Graham at the time was addicted to heroin. Unlike most of Nilsson's other victims, Graham is straight but his addiction lands him in a vulnerable position and he foolishly trusts Nilsson's invitation of a hot meal and a bed for the night. Nilsson strangles Graham from behind as he has eaten an omelette that Nilsson had prepared for him mere moments before. His body is kept in the bar for days whilst Nilsson contemplates what to do with the corpse. The body slowly bloats and softens over time and eventually Nilsson decides to dismember the body and attempts to flush the evidence away once again. A sad fact about Graham's situation is that on the morning of his death, he actually had an argument with his wife over his heroin use. After telling her he was going out to get a fix, his wife screamed after him telling him if he did, he would never come back. And he never did. A few months later and into the new year of 1983, Nilsson decides to visit London's West End in the hope of finding another vulnerable victim he can lure to his home. He takes the tube to Leicester Square and comes across 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Such is his gift for spotting vulnerability in others, Nilsson takes advantage of the cold night and offers to buy Stephen dinner. The two of them eat burgers before heading back to Cranley Gardens where the two of them drink rum to warm their cold bodies. At some point in the evening, Stephen decides to shoot up some heroin and once the opiate has taken its effect, Nilsson grabs the ligature used and wraps it around Stephen's neck, once again strangling another young man to his death. Following his usual ritual of bathing and grooming the body, Nilsson quickly discovers the fresh cut marks on Stephen's arms. Stephen clearly has a history of self-harm and Nilsson believes him to have done Stephen the ultimate favour with this mercy killing. Nilsson keeps Stephen as his companion for weeks, but soon he too begins to rot and decay. Nilsson knows he must also dispose of this body too. However, he does not yet know that this will be the last body he will ever get rid of. By this time, the accumulation of human flesh and crushed up bone fragments are beginning to put the plumbing of 23 Cranley Gardens under extreme pressure. The whole building begins to experience blocked toilets and sinks, with all tenants complaining to one another about the state of the situation. A meeting is held between the tenants of the different flats, where Nilsson volunteers himself to write a stern letter regarding the plumbing situation to the landlord. Questions here, does he think he's untouchable? Or does he subconsciously want to be discovered? I think he's being clever. And if he's the only one in the, in the household not writing the letter, he's going to be like, why isn't he not complaining when mm. this stinks about? I don't think it's a come get me. I think it's a 
him trying to be smart. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm going to write the most stern letter. Yeah. But never post it. Oh, you didn't post it? Oh, I don't know. I think he did post it. He probably did. I'm just being, being silly. Yeah, that's, that'd be stupid if he did that. It's just silly, not stupid. No, but it would be stupid if he did A few days later, plumber Michael Catron, who we mentioned earlier, will make his gruesome discovery and Nilsson's murder spree will be brought to an end once and for all. We now find ourselves back in 1983, where Dennis Nilsson is formally charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair, his last victim. On February 11th, the police were able to officially identify the young Scott. When asked by the police why exactly he had committed this horrific act along with the others, Nilsson responds with, Well, I don't know. I was rather hoping you could tell me that. Which is an incredibly kind of arrogant and smug thing to say. Dennis Nilsson's murder trial commences on Monday the 24th of October 1983 at London's Old Bailey. By the time of the trial, only six victims had been identified and he is charged with six counts of murder, along with two charges of attempted murder. Nilsson's defence put forward the suggestion of him pleading not guilty to murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility and be tried for manslaughter instead. They simply need to demonstrate that he has an abnormality in the mind and therefore he was not entirely responsible for what he was doing at the time of the homicides. Carl Stotter, who he previously mentioned, gives evidence in court alongside two other victims, Paul Nobbs and Douglas Stewart, who also almost lost their lives to Dennis Nilsson. The defence focused heavily on all three of the young men's sexual orientations in a bid to undermine the testimonies, although the tactic thankfully doesn't work. Their harrowingly detailed accounts, alongside the gruesome physical evidence presented in court, such as the pot used to boil victims' heads in... It's always a big casserole pot. I've mentioned this before. Why is it... Why yeah. they, whenever they go in there, there's always the pot still there. Crack pot. Yeah. With the head in it. Yeah. It's always, it's always still on the... Stove. Yeah. Creatures of habit. Yeah. This evidence is enough to sway the jury and on the 4th of November 1983, Dennis Nilsson is found guilty on six charges of murder. Imagine if the head in the pot didn't sway the jury. He is sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 25 years to be served before the possibility of parole. In December of 1994, the Home Secretary, Michael Howard, makes the decision to change Nilsson's sentence to a full life term, meaning he will never be released from prison a decision which Nilsson accepts and never challenges. Only eight of Nilsson's murder victims were ever officially identified. Stephen Holmes, 14. Stephen was only identified in 2006 via DNA matching. Kenneth Ockenden, 23. Martin Duffy, 16. William Sutherland, 26. Malcolm Barlow, 23. John Howlett, 23. Graham Allen, 27. Stephen Sinclair, 20. After being charged with six counts of murder, Nilsson was taken to Wormwood Scrubs Prison to begin his life sentence, but after an altercation with another inmate, where he was slashed with a blade and had to receive 89 stitches as a result, he was soon transferred to HMP Parkhurst and then on to HMP Wakefield. It's near your end of the woods before Ben, wasn't it? Kind of. Nilsson was not a popular inmate and he would frequently write complaints to the Home Office to criticise the conditions he was being kept in and suggested that he suffered abuse at the hands of the prison guards. Almost immediately after Nilsson's arrest, Brian Masters, a true crime writer and biographer, contacted the murderer and the two struck up a communication. Masters wrote to Nilsson explaining that he wished to cover the crimes in careful detail, but only with Nilsson's cooperation. Nilsson agreed and the two regularly met as well as wrote to one another, with Masters' findings eventually going on to be the basis of his best-selling book, Killing for Company. The company killer? No. Wouldn't be the kind of killers. Some of the people that just put into administration. Yeah, absolutely. House of Fraser, BHS, Woolworths. Yeah, Woolies. Master's account of Killing for Company was also turned into a three-part drama series called Des, starring David Tennant as Dennis Nilsson. 
It was released in 2020, and although it did receive some initial criticism, and it was accused of glorifying a murderer, the miniseries has a score of 7.6 on IMDb and 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I watched it. I don't think it glorified him at all. No, I haven't seen it. I've only seen the trailer, but it was... Tennant does a very good job in that trailer. He does. During his incarceration, Nielsen also penned his own autobiography, named The History of a Drowning Boy. The Home Office blocked its publication during Nielsen's lifetime, but it was released after his death in 2018 and officially published in January 2021. Do you remember, Ben, a long time ago, one of our, I think one of our very early... We used to do just on our uh, on our um, Instagram just random facts. Yeah, do you remember the random fact about Dennis Nilsson? Something to do with Braille. Yes, and we did the, we did the hilarious headline: "Epic Braille, like epic fail." So serial killer Dennis Nilsson had transcribed 184 published books into Braille while serving a life sentence in prison. At least he was put to good use. Yeah, that will be time consuming. Very. Many documentaries, podcasts and books have been written and released on one of Britain's most prolific serial killers, with Netflix even releasing Memories of a Murderer, The Nielsen Tapes, a documentary narrated by Nielsen's own audio tape recordings. <clears throat> There's a bit of his uh, audio recording of his voice in that, that the quote I really liked. I hope, I hope we use it in an image. I am a man, not a monster. Awkward, isn't it? But he says it in a really ugh, sinister way. I am a man, not a monster. Awkward, isn't it? Ooh. Yeah, I feel like I was there. Dennis Nelson died at age 72 on the 12th of May, 2018, after being transferred to York Hospital, complaining of severe abdominal pains. His medical cause of death was given as pulmonary embolism and retroperitoneal hemorrhage. You, and you did that in the first go? Wow. Man of the medicine, Ben. Yeah. So, yeah, we mentioned throughout the episode the parallels between the case of uh, Dennis Nilsson and the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. Both killed their first victim to stop them from leaving. Both picked up victims in local pubs and bars. Both killed men and boys. Both had uh, military service under their belt. Both had motives of complete ownership and power of a person or corpse. Both engaged in acts of necrophilia. Both had a fear of emotional rejection and failure. Both killers came frighteningly close to being caught after victimising young migrants from Asia. And actually, they're both kind of similar in visual appearance. Kind of. No. Kind of. If that's one of your lookalikes, then it's no. not. It's not, it's not. It's someone with glasses. That's literally the only yeah. similarity there. Yeah. When asked in a prison interview if he ever considered eating his victims like Jeffrey Dahmer, Nilsson replied, Oh, never. I'm strictly a bacon and eggs man. And omelettes. And omelettes. Oh, well, that's eggs, isn't it? So, Could yeah. be a bacon omelette. He did actually talk about Jeffrey Dahmer on occasion and his biographer, who we talked about, Brian Masters, at one point interviewed Nilsson regarding Dahmer and Nilsson stated, Dahmer had a need for feelings of self-esteem that are usually satisfied only in his fantasies because he cannot garner such fruits from live people. He needs a totally unresisting passive model of a human being in order to cross the bridge temporarily into society. Catchy. Yeah. A long-term pen pal of Dennis Nilsson claimed that David Tennant's performance as Des was like seeing a ghost. Nelson had to do uh, draw some sketches for the police to help with their, their investigation, and they're pretty scary sketches, so we'll pop them up for the visual uh, episode. Here you go. Have a look at them. The houses of horror, where serial killer Dennis Nilsson slaughtered and cut up his victims, are both still standing today. You like stuff like this? Show me a bit of love. But they are, they're both, um, they're both still standing today. They're both being completely remodelled, renovated, of course. But they both look really nice. With his flat in Cricklewood even selling for over half a million pounds. And that is the case of Dennis Nilsson, the kindly killer. And we can now move on to a little bit of light relief with some lookalikes. What does it look like? That looks like a bit like that. Yeah, it looks a bit like it. 
you have four. You've said to me beforehand, two are good and two are shit. Two are good and two are shit. How, how do you want them? I'd probably say for shit, you shouldn't bring them to the table if you know they're shit. Some people like my shit. What? Some of the shit ones get a laugh. Go on then. Would you want me to start good or bad? I think they'll probably be gone. Either one. I won't tell you if this is good or bad. <laughs> I'll, okay, let, me, <laughs> let me guess. A young Dennis Nilsson looks like a young Stephen King. I always think Stephen King looks like a who. Yeah, that's good. I, I had to I had to fish for my Stephen King photos because some of them are scary. No offences. That is quite good. The main thing about that is the angle of the picture. Yeah, yeah. They're both sitting at quite Doesn't, an odd angle. Yeah, exactly. I've done well to find that. Okay, well done. Thank you. Do you have one? Yeah, I've only got one, so... Uh, he looks like political journalist Robert Peston. <laughs> have you got it? Yeah. That is good. Yeah, that's Did it. you get the same picture as me? I went for this one. I was oh, like, that's a good I was at the gym the other day, and he came on the screen, and I was like, yeah. I had no one. I was like, oh! Yeah, sometimes they find this. you. Yeah. Sometimes they find you. My weak one. Dan said what? I'm looking forward to gone. Velma from Scooby-Doo. That's, oh, that's so lazy. Yeah, and then... <laughs> and then finally, Rose West. Just glasses and back hair. Yeah. No, he said that. He looks a little bit like... What's his name? Who sings... Here in my cup... Ba, ba, da, ba, da, Gary ba, ba. In cars... No, that's a terrible show. So, yeah, Ben's already said my lookalike. I um, feel bad, but... No, nah, that's fine. I do think out of the lot, that's the best one. Yeah, I agree. Um, we both got there, so that's great. We both got there. It's nice. I was like, oh, I found one that's actually good. Then, mm. But fair play. That's the risk you have of letting you go in first. And that is the case of Dennis Nilsson, the kindly killer. But before we go... The cult. There has been some applications made for the, the cult of Ickman. Just a few. Bloody Dan, hundreds. Dan, play the jingle. Of ICMAP. <laughs> there have literally been hundreds of emails yeah. though, so thank you everyone. And I, I did see a few people with the old shuffle in brackets, but that'll be some fun for another day. Bag a job. It's jobs, isn't it? Yeah. I I didn't have room for the S, so it's not. That is just a hot water, hot water bottle. Yeah. I've glued it though with wood glue. That's yeah, not going anywhere. How are you getting your hand in there? Well, just like our cult, Tom, it's very hard to get in and out of. It's not really. You said anyone can get in there using the bag of jobs. Oh yeah, you can get in, but getting out is hard. Okay, that's like any. Yeah. Oh shit! Actually, it's the glue's seeped through the bottle, and now no, I can't get in. There you go. Oh, that's okay. Gorilla glue. Okay. Yeah, we uh, we will do the shuffle at some point. Yeah, uh, but got a few in there. Look, there you go. But that's going to be on another day because yeah. just wanted to let you know the bag is hit. Oh, oh. but it, there are some fun ones in there. So if you yeah. want to be shuffled up. But we, yeah, as Ben mentioned, we have had lots of uh, applicants for the, for the cult. So we're just going to run for you a few now. If you haven't been read out, don't worry. We will be making our way through. Just you know, the the admin team have let us down a little bit this week. Um... <laughs> What? <laughs> Don't even listening. So, Charlotte Meddings. Charlotte was the first uh, first one to email in to apply. She said, Hey, love the podcast. Put myself forward as a tattoo artist for the cult. Because, well, everybody will need to be branded with the cult symbol. I like that. Makes sense. Looks like good. That. You're in. I'm in. You're in. Charlotte, welcome welcome, welcome in. to the cult. The first, well, the first official cult member. What would the uh, cult symbol be, though, for a mm. tattoo? That's a question for another day, perhaps. It is. Or maybe that could be a first job. Yeah, to send, yeah. send us one in. Yeah, I'll be actually. I'll be generally really interested to see a tattoo. Yeah, that's yeah, an idea too. for that. Her Insta is Charlotte underscore Pokes, and I assume the Pokes is for poking people with needles and ink tattoos. Yeah, not, not, probably not Facebook Pokes. Could be. 
It could be. Okay, another one. Uh, Olivia Longdon has written in, applying for the cult, and she said, Hello, my name is Olivia. I am an auction porter in Derbyshire. My job is to unpack and photograph antiques. The majority of boxes that come in are from probates, deceased people's houses. My first week in, I was unpacking a job and saw a Victorian trinket box, which rattled. Ooh. So I obviously was going to open it, and inside there were some teeth from a child dating back to the 1800s. Crikey. Wow. I've also come across... A mummified rat. Which is fascinating. I don't know exactly, Olivia, if we're going to have an auction house. Obviously, that's what, that's the big plans for the... It's funny you should say that. But I'm sure in the future we will. And so I think, I mean, as well, I imagine you've got a good eye for trinkets and cool things mm. to kind of decorate the offices. Of the... Can, could you as well, sort of, if you see a few items that would be better for the cult than to go to pocket auction, them. pocket them, yeah. Yeah, like that. Slide them it's off. A bit, bit of the theft, please, Olivia. Yeah. You're in the cult. Yeah. Another one from Raj Blanchard. Hello, Ben, Tom and Dan. I'm a milkman. Always on time like Ja Rule. <laughs> That's great. He's in. He's in. He's already in. My preference of milk is full fat milk. Semi-skinned is decent and anything else is a crime. Ooh. What's your preference, boys? Semi-skimmed. Oat. Oat. I find it a very fulfilling job that allows me to listen to music while doing the job, preferably indie music. Oh, there you mm-hmm. go. Yeah. I live near Hungerford uh, and can drive. Willing to wear uniform... Overall, think I'd be a great asset to the cult to keep everybody's bones strong with my milk. <laughs> I'd just like the fact you put my milk. Willing to wear a uniform is interesting. Yeah, I'm sure someone had emailed saying that they are a uh, crafter. They said they were going to make, uh, able to sew and stitch uniforms together. Costume designer. We literally had hundreds of emails, guys. Electricians, psychologists, painter and decorators, comedians, chefs. I'm going to read one from Courtney Birch. Hi, I'd love to be part of the cult. I could be the resident electrician, which, to be honest, very helpful. I think my skill set will be fairly helpful unless you don't want any power. I mean, I don't know how the cult may proceed with security for the other residents, but high power electric fences, which could keep people out or in, if you wanted Ben. <laughs> don't know what happened. Sorry. I think it's keeping you in, not the fact right. that you want, you want to keep. I don't know. Yeah. I'm fairly handy with the power tools and could always help any which way required. All hail ICMAP. So that's a few, a few of the applicants. Please All hail ICMAP, yeah. it's nice. One thing I will say is, if you're going to apply, lovely seeing the comments on Instagram, but if you could do it via the email, yeah. that would be great, because we're more, much more likely to read them out. Great. So big thank you to anyone who has applied for the um, the cult, and we'll be going through a few more of those every week now, because yeah. there's, there's a lot to go through. There which, are. Which we love, and we will read all the emails to come through, so don't you worry about that. And if you simply can't get enough of the content, we have a Patreon page, which we release Minnesota's weekly. So it works out roughly $4. Yeah. Which is basically a pound now, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah, for $4, four pounds a month for a Minnesota every week. And the episodes that you guys pick, and then people vote on the polls. And it's a lot of fun over there, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Really, 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 really great people over there. The Patreonies are... And thank you to all the Patreonies. I mean, the immediate entry to the cult as well. I yeah. don't know if we mentioned that. Yeah, you, you, are, you guys have, haven't got a choice. You're straight into the cult. And also, you get a discount code for the store. Yeah, which is icmap.store. Little Halloween bundle on the go at the moment, yes. if there's any left. And the casualties as well, the slight misprint. But um, yeah, everything, everything's relatively well stocked. So go and have a little looky. We're not very well stocked at all, but still have a look. You might find a bargain. There's nothing wrong with being honest, is there? Well, you lied first, and then you yeah, I did lie. Oh, and socials to keep in the loop of everything that we're up to at Could Murder a Pod Instagram and Twitter. Search I Could Murder a Podcast on Facebook. Search I Could Murder a Podcast on TikTok. We're everywhere. And guys, next week is the final episode of the series, the finale, and 
comment down below um, guessing what the case is going to be. I honestly don't think anyone will get it. I, was strong. I would put a lot of money on no one getting it. No one will get it. I'm challenging you. You, yeah. You think I'm talking about them? No, I'm talking about you. Comment down below and guess what the case will be. If anyone gets it right, give them a price. Fourth leader of the cult, they could be. Third leader of the cult. Fourth. That'd be... Because third is, well, all of us. We're first, second and third. Okay, yeah. All of us. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, before, we'll probably should wrap this up. Yeah. Like we always say... We say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, unless it's... Um, Cold baths. Yes. Mm. Yes. Making one too many lethal omelettes. No, I don't lethal. think dogs ever go bleep as well. I've never heard that. No. Call it woof. Woof. Come here, woof. Barky. Barky boy. Come here, Barky boy. Um, unless it's... Um, bow wow, little bow wow. Unless it's angling your... Mi- well, the... Angling your mirror and having a... Yeah, yeah. scruffy woodsman. Yeah, having a... Having a scruffy woodsman yeah. to a fa- yourself. A fantasy of getting Ooh. wanked off and your dick's alive. Yeah. What's that about? The rest of you is dead. Yeah, all my dick. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all the best to Pip. <laughs> What's the food like? Um, question on everyone's mind. It varies. But it is largely high in protein, fruits, and erections. <laughs> Come in, John. Mind a step. <laughs> I've just found a cook in the butter dish. You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter, produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound, edited by Ben Bonsey. Additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna-Parker. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash couldmurderapod. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.